Hello, I'm Colin Parker, and this is EQ&A. EQ&A is a premier podcast of interviews and panels with music and entertainment industry professionals. These are done in a weekly forum at Loyola University of New Orleans, and today's interview is of Ashley Sampson and Reed Martin. Ashley Sampson is a talent buyer and an event director for a multitude of festivals and concert venues throughout her time in the industry. And Reed Martin is a artist manager working with artists such as Sweet Crude and Big Frida. It's a really great interview uh, because basically the two of them are interviewing each other. So it's a really interactive interview, very high energy, and a lot of really great talking points, including things such as the barrier to entry into the industry, talent buying, hurricane improvisation for tours and stuff like that, seasons for routing artists, and all sorts of things to talk about. And now let's cut over to that interview. Check one, two. Now it's on. Okay. Could we get a little bit more of ourselves in the monitors here? <laughs> Reed's uh, Riders backstage. Who are you? My name is Ashley Sampson. I am currently the talent buyer for Bowery Presents, booking music venues down here in New Orleans. Reed? Uh, my name is Reed. <laughs> I, I live here in New Orleans and I run a management company. Fabulous. So Reed and I know each other, um, but we've never really gotten to know each other's backgrounds. So this is going to be a pretty fun conversation that we're going to have back and forth. And we'd like people to jump in with questions if you have them while we're talking, if you think of them. We're going to save time at the end, but uh, I guess if somebody's on that side and I can't see them, I got you and I'll I'll do this side. Got that whole crowd. There we go. Um... When did you graduate college? <laughs> so I came, come from a performing arts background, BFA in uh, theater and acting from the Goodman School of Drama in Chicago. I was born and raised in Chicago, and growing up there, you're n- naturally immersed in a lot of different art forms, dance, music, theater, what have you. Um, and being on the stage and in that performing arts and doing all of the, uh, just being on stage with theater and in music has kind of led me down the path once I moved from Chicago to New York to transfer to Montclair State University, which was a BA theater major. That gave us the opportunity to travel and perform in China and to do some really exciting things on stage in other countries and to also be closer to New York. New York is where I have, I think, always kind of wanted to be. So moving from Chicago to New York was kind of the natural next step for me. And that's actually how I got started with a company called Rehaj Entertainment that used to produce the Voodoo Music Festival. After Katrina, they had based their operations up in New York and were going back down to and forth from New Orleans. And that's how I started going back and forth to and from down New Orleans. But What's up with the Rehaj office on Bienville? That, I think, will be there for forever. <laughs> the gas station sign. Yeah. Yes. Do, do you still, do, does Ray, like, who owns it? I believe so, yes. And so we still talk, still friends, um, even moving on. So Ray Hodge was purchased by Live Nation, and I stayed with that through 2015 until I moved to work for the Bowery Presents, which has their main hub up in New York. Um, but then still, they have a branch down here, Bowery South, which I'm sure people know, booking for Gasa Gasa, and the Civic Theater in New Orleans, which where we have St. Vincent tonight, which brought me into town. Woo! Yeah, anyone going? Yeah. 
yes. <laughs> We're excited. It's going to be awesome. Um, Reed, how did you get started in the business? Oh, Lord. Well, I uh, went to this fine institution, and uh, I, when I was in school, um, I was just, my jobs and my internships were all in the music business, um, and when I graduated, um, I, was, I was playing in a band, and it was going well, and you, you booked my band. Tell everyone the name so they no, can No, 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 that, that life's over. <laughs> we were called the Blue Party. We played Voodoo yes. Fest one time, and, and Ashley booked it. Um, and um, anyway, um, I was writing the songs and booking the shows, and uh, didn't realize that I was managing the band, you know? Um, like most bands, we broke up. Um, and uh, that was about three years after I graduated college. I was 25 and just like, holy crap, what do I do now? Um, and so at that point, um, I worked at every job that I could. I was bartending at multiple places. I got a real estate license. Um, I opened up Gossa Gossa, which I work with you, but I also failed miserably at some other things and wound up in some pretty, pretty good bank loan debt. And, uh, and so I just worked a while to pay that off. Um, one of the people that I was working for was named Adam Shipley, and he manages the Soul Rebels. And uh, it was like I was a freshman in college again. I was putting handbills on cars, just like doing whatever he needed me to do when he was promoting a show. But I just wasn't about to turn my nose up to any work at that point in my life. And, uh, and then he started needing uh, somebody to go out with the Rebels on the road when their tour manager couldn't go. And eventually, it turned into me tour managing the Soul Rebels full time. And from there, I started managing artists on the side, which eventually became my entire living. And I had to stop tour managing the Soul Rebels. Um, so it was a long process to get here. And it's interesting, I find, always in this town where the people that I started working with on Voodoo before festivals or even festivals and the thing that people wanted to do and popping up everywhere, it was always the same group of people, the same people that were in charge of running the Preservation Hall stage, like Ron Rona in charge of the bingo stage and Adam Shipley working closely with him running other stages and how even your professor, Michael Twillman, was... Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Shout out to uh, he, Mike. He's at the Civic though, he's right now. At the Civic loading. In. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually my very first intern that I had all the way up in New York. We picked oh, three candidates from this pool of students to come up. He was one of them. And then he just worked harder than I think I've seen anyone ever work in this history and doing all these different things, doing promotion and getting involved in stage production and putting his hands into everything and really getting that giant scope. He worked with me on, I think, every music festival that we did between Voodoo and Essence for about five years. And I think you just raised a good point because um, the people here are going to be graduating soon. Some might be freshmen, you know, everybody's at a different trajectory, but. One thing, I mean, there's, there's oftentimes more supply in this business than there is demand. And that is most pronounced on the artistic side. There's a lot of really good music out there. Um, but there's just so many people doing it and the barrier to entry is so low. But also on the professional side. You know, there's a lot of people that would love to work in the music business for their living. And the way that tends to sort itself out on a, I was a double major in econ, um, <laughs> on a supply and demand curve, um, <laughs> is that you know the the way you weed out that extra supply is 
people, it's whoever's really just hustling, regardless of how menial the task is. So I said, I was 25 again and, or, and, and putting handbills on cars again, you know, and, uh, that was not where I expected I would be at that point in my life. Absolutely. But. I expected to be performing and being on the stage when I moved to New York. And there was just something about actually being there. And there was, there was a shift, I think, in the culture of New York and in the way when you were performing and you were doing something, you were doing a show and you would get cast and you'd audition and then you'd go right back. And it was the same cycle. And there was something about that that um, was the, the creativity was being pulled, yeah. I feel like, out of that. And being able to go and have all of those different experiences. I started as a volunteer and found my way in through a nonprofit event that Ray Hodge Entertainment was producing up in New York called the Revlon Run Walk for Women. Started as a volunteer, and then a temp, and then full-time, but that was nights, weekends for over three years mm -hmm. to really figure out what this edge of the industry was about. I didn't have a music business school to attend. A fancy music business degree. A fancy degree. music business degree That's right. that would tell you things. So it was really learning on the job and then learning from the ground up and what that experience was like, even with festivals. I mean, festivals for us was touring Lollapalooza. Yeah. <laughs> right. Shit. That used to be a tour. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about this corner of the music business that you occupy. You're a talent buyer. Um, and you come in, um, you know, I feel like it could go different ways, but a lot of talent buyers rise through the ranks of clubs and then they get to buying festivals. You started working for festivals, eventually buying festivals. And now with Bowery, you, you're booking clubs as well. And those are two different beasts. Um, just for everybody's reference, we're going to be saying soft tickets and hard tickets here. A soft ticket is a festival, um, a private event. Something uh, where the artist is not getting paid directly by the ticket sales. Um, a hard ticket event is a club, venue, theater, where the artist payout at the end of the night is directly correlated with the tickets that they sold or with what the promoter thought they were going to sell. <laughs> um, That's the gamble. <laughs> and um, and so those are those are two different beasts. And um, let's let's talk about those. Like what um. I mean, what do you look for? Let's start with soft tickets. So what do you look for in an artist when you're booking a festival? Like what, what drives the decisions? It's so interesting too. I feel like at the end, as soon as we got through Halloween weekend for Voodoo or got through July 4th weekend for Essence, you were already thinking about who your next headliner was going to be. You're already thinking about who's got the next record that's coming out, who's going to go on tour, who could we pull, the, that's the greatest get of the get, is pull out of the woodwork, out of their home environment. How much money does it take to really get those people that are in retirement, out of retirement, to create those special experiences? I have a question. Yes, Reed. Didn't y'all offer, make an offer every year to Tom Waits for Voodoo Fest? And I cannot comment that at this time. <laughs> is that just, that's an urban myth? There were, there were a lot of artists that were, um, it was always throwing the Hail Mary pass. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about working on a festival, that you can throw those Hail Mary passes, where you can say, like we had Green Day booked for one of the voodoos, I can't remember, probably 2009, and Billy Joe um, went into rehab. So we were a week before the festival without a major headliner. And this was like, 
primary positioning yeah. on the festival poster. Big deal. Um, and it was trying to figure out, are we going to be able to get someone to fly in from Europe, maybe Radiohead, come on in from here, who, who's available even this last minute? And the Hail Mary pass went to Metallica. And that was like the greatest get if you're going to replace a band. Yeah. That was pretty good. Um, but with those, it's all who's touring. It's all who's who is available. Well, is that record hot? Do you think people are going to like it? And one of the other big things is you're booking for your market. Is it New Orleans or is it up in New York? We worked on the Quicksilver Pro surf competition and you're doing, they've got surf, music, skate, motocross. I think that's what it's called or BMX, <laughs> bicycles. Um, but we were booking for an entirely different audience there. But then Hurricane Irene hit and our whole stage got swept out into the ocean. So that festival never made it, never got it, never got there. How about when that happens? That's the worst. Yeah. It's the worst. And I think one of my last years on Voodoo, there was flooding. We had oh, an yeah. entire Sunday canceled the Zach Brown Band and everything. You know, you're already going back and forth with the artists from like eight o'clock in the morning and trying to work on tickets and like, oh, you need more comps. Oh, we need to do this with catering. Oh, okay. And then we just can't do it because there's two feet of flooding. So then when... It's ultimately what comes down to it is it's so much more paperwork that you have at the end of the day. You've gone through all and everyone, the agent, the managers, the band is already there or already en route. We had the sounds coming in from Sweden and there were certain, you have to just figure out what you're going to do. What are you going to do about your deposits? What are you going to do about your, all of the, your production that just went out into the ocean? Um, and can you put these bands anywhere else? We had Matt and Kim, they were supposed to perform. They're Brooklyn-based, so they just did a DJ. Uh, they did a DJ set for us, which was awesome at the Standard. And so it was trying to recon. We had Portugal the Man actually do DJ sets as well at the Alegria Hotel in Long Beach. Um, but in sounds, we had to find another show for them to play. But yes, yeah, so. The artist, it always starts with who's out, who's going to be out, and then the agents will come at you and they will pitch you. They will pitch you lists of their bands that they think are headliners that are, like if you have bigger agencies, like for example, like a William Morris, I know we'll, we'll go through with the either the RA, the responsible agent, mostly at William Morris as a territory agent. Other agencies, every agent represents their own artists. So they'll come to you individually. So at the end of the day, it's, it could be hundreds of solicited submissions. And then you have unsolicited submissions where people found your email address and you listen to press kits. And that's the, one of the most fun parts is hearing new music and you're hearing these bands that are not big, that have not been signed, that are not, um, that are not out there yet. And what do you think they mean for your audience? Are they going to connect to the people that are going to Voodoo and Essence and any other said festival? Right. And you're also working from a budget. Right, so you're talking about the undercard of the festival where you may not, I mean, I've got uh, a few artists that are at that level where they're, where we just try and sweep up the undercards of festivals um, and they may not be that well known in a certain market and they're probably getting overpaid um, because they can't pull that on a hard ticket show. Mm -hmm. But um, I feel like in those instances, it's, the talent buyer is making an aesthetic decision about the music that they want to present to their festival. And um, do you feel like you're also taking like a building goodwill with that band, betting on them essentially? You definitely do. And you bet on those bands. And when you watch those bands grow into, we had Florence and the Machine, I think that was 2008. And then watching 
her grow into our headliner five years later. But I do always feel that where you win on the festival front when you're booking those soft tickets is with that middle tier. Those big headliners, you know, if you're lucky, those headliners are routing in into New Orleans. One of the, the reason I split my time between New York and New Orleans is because every tour will hit New York in some capacity, where it's now on the uh, flip side as a talent buyer for a club when I'm begging people to come down, sending unsolicited offers. Let's see what we can do, what, do that routing and come on. And then it does depend on the money and what, the, what are the you know, economics of the city that you're booking for and how does that play a part. But I absolutely, it's the most exciting part of the job is when you have, you can watch that band grow from that smaller that smaller level on your festival bill and then have them grow, watching like the Black Keys or the Kings of Leon and Arctic Monkeys. It's really exciting. What is the difference? Now it's hard ticket wise. Okay. So actually before I even get into this, when you're booking a club show, a hard ticket show, venue, theater, you know, whatever. So civic, gasa, gasa. Mm -hmm. um, are you considering anything beyond what you think the band is gonna be worth in tickets? I mean, and that's like, I, I don't mean to like demean it because as it, you know, it's like, uh, I once had somebody come up and, uh, and, and just be like, hey, I want you to see this band. Let me know what you think they're, they're worth, what I should mm -hmm. quote. I'm like, well, they're worth what they're going to sell. Mm -hmm. um, do you consider anything beyond that when you're making those decisions? It's a, that's, it's, that's what's really, really hard. And you have, um, you have artists that you really, really love and you really believe in, or you're booking genres that maybe aren't your... It's not what you're listening to on your ride home at night, but you need to know what you think your audience wants and not what you want. And a lot of that comes with research, a lot of research and a lot of data. There are a lot of resources that are at your disposal as a talent buyer yeah. to be able to use to see what their history is in the market. And so maybe they've never played New Orleans, like maybe they've never played, but you know what they did in Atlanta or in Houston. And you can use that. And that's the same thing in the festival side, too. You can see what those ticket numbers are. How did they do? And when you're looking at, and on the festival side, you have um, a much broader landscape to be able to pick and choose, where if an artist that you really love that's going to be perfect for this slot and they pass, you probably have one or two, three, two or three in your back pocket that you can always pull up that are kind of in the same genre, that may sound the same, that could draw about the same number of tickets. But when you're on a hard ticket, I mean, it's like it's your life on the line for every single ticket <laughs> to get yeah. those to sell. What's the difference between booking New Orleans versus other markets? Mm. New Orleans is, and I think I, every agent that I work with and manager that knows this market can, can attest, it's, it's a hit or a miss you have a lot of variables. Um, you have a smaller, like it's just capacity-wise for the number of music venues that are down here. You, there's a lot, and I would say that there's a lot of stiff competition to get shows. And there's, uh, and at the same point, and you would know better than anybody with the number of venues in town, it's still not a sure thing for an artist to get a gig. There's just a lot going on. I work in the New York office, and so I hear the on sales, and I see the numbers for a city like New York, and my God, they're on sales, like 400 tickets in the first four hours, and you're just sad, because that's <laughs> not going to happen here. Yeah. But then you also have the slow burn in New Orleans, which is exciting. The one thing that is really tough to deal with is weather, yeah. 
because you never know if you're going to get a flash flood. Okay, what's the weather going to be like here? Oh, well, it's now going to randomly snow. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's one of the that's one of the and that's one of the struggles too with working festivals. I, I like now more the indoor because you can control your variables inside on like a festival where you just have. There's high winds, and we had one festival in Dallas, Texas, that the, the main field got to be about 103, and we had to call in a fire truck from the town next door to just let the hose over the entire crowd. <laughs> it, was, it was nuts. That was nuts. Well, let's see here. What's next on the notes? Well, then you, I, in turn, booking for or managing artists coming from, a, do you prefer a soft ticket or do you prefer a hard ticket? What do you look for when you route a year? Soft tickets all day. <laughs> Said like a true manager. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, yeah, of course. Um, as a manager, um, I don't want to, I want to avoid burning my artist's hard ticket value um, in every way possible. So you get an artist, um, like Big Frida, for example, um, who is big enough that we can we can field the demand that comes in for the most part, and then, and as far as hard tickets go, we get to be a little bit more concerned about how we tour, um, and 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 it's about putting together cool packages and putting on a different show each time you know we hit a market. But if I'm if we're doing a festival in Boston, then we're gonna we're gonna get we're going to get our check and we can go back to Boston probably three or four months later and still sell the same number of tickets we could on a hard ticket show, right. you, awesome. you know? So, but, but if we, if we were to do a hard ticket in Boston and then go back there three or four months later, that is a really bad idea for me as a manager. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't want to do more than one show per year with one of my bigger acts in any given market mm -hmm. because we've got to preserve the demand for that band mm -hmm. or that artist. What's been the toughest market for your, your artist to break into in general or specifically? Salt Lake City. Wow, that was quick. <laughs> what about Salt Lake City is challenging? Uh, that and I feel like Phoenix. Mm. Um, Vegas is tough too, depend, depending on, on the show. Because what type of venues are your opportunities in those cities? So they're always routing markets, especially Phoenix and Salt Lake. So I don't know if y'all know this, but there's nothing on the western half of the United States. There's just nothing. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you're an artist, um, I'm sure hopefully y'all have read Tour Smart at some point. But you know, in, in that book, you can draw a line down from Minneapolis, St. Paul, through Texas, you know, down to like San Antonio. And east of that line are the eight of the 100 markets in the U.S., 85 of the biggest markets live east of that line. Only 15 of the biggest markets in the U.S. are west of it. And in order to even get to those 15, you've got to drive through Utah, Nevada, New Mexico. And, and I mean, there's just nothing out there. Sorry if anybody's from those states. They're beautiful. Uh, but but uh, from a population standpoint, yeah. um, so, so you're stuck playing Salt Lake City and just... It's, it's like playing New Orleans to a certain extent because we are a cultural island here. And um, as you said, some, some shows here just pop, whereas they'll just die in Birmingham or Houston or Atlanta. But then, all, you know, but then a band that's doing 600 tickets in Atlanta comes to New Orleans. You're like, oh, yeah, this band's on fire. And they do 80 tickets. Mm -hmm. 
because God knows what other parties and things popped up that night in New Orleans. And, you know, Rebirth Brass Band's also playing that same night because they do every week. Right. You know, things like that. Right. Um, so, Is yeah. there a specific time of the year that you look to route your artists? or Absolutely. So um, the summers are always the best for soft tickets. And, this, and, and the late spring and early fall. So and the I, hardest for hard tickets. They, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so basically you want to... If you're doing your job as a manager, you've got your band out doing club tours um, in the winter um, or, you know, basically from November to March, I would say, um, if there's enough demand. Um, And then from April to October, you let whatever whatever festivals and soft tickets you're getting offers for dictate where you're going to go. And so, you know, if we have a client that gets... um, a big offer to play Kansas City. Um, you know, f- from a management standpoint, I'm thinking, okay, so is this something that we just want to play Kansas City on this Saturday and then come home? Or do we also want to go ahead and, you know, do St. Louis and Omaha that same weekend too or something like that and, and do club shows? So a lot of times what I'll do is um, I'll get a soft ticket artist or soft ticket offer for an artist and then I'll build two club shows around it on the Thursday, you know, whatever two days on the weekend, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they're not playing in that market. So. What do you do when an artist has a poorly performing show? <sighs> Run Facebook ads and pray. <laughs> <laughs> what about at the show and then after the uh, show? Yeah. Um, How do you handle that? Just like from like you're at the show and the sales aren't where they need to be. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you've, you know, that's not something you want your artist to be worrying about first off. Mm-hmm. Um, it, regardless, I mean, your artist needs to go in there and kill it. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, that's, that's the only thing you can do. So you've got to, I mean, I'm sure you're doing this every day too. Like every day. Uh, I, you know, from my standpoint, I'm putting out fires and dealing with stuff that I really don't want to deal with at all. Mm-hmm. And then there's the good news that comes in. And some weeks I'll have just, I'll just be on a losing streak, mm-hmm. just, just terrible news. And it's just, and I have to deal with it. And then I'll be on a good streak. But the fact of the matter is like, when the bad news comes in, a show's not work, you know, selling well, you know, the way it needs to be or whatever, you've got to stay positive. Mm-hmm. You have to just be like, all right, we're just going to make the most of this situation. And, and, you know, I'll never, if, if we've got a guarantee, I'm not about to, like, go to the promoter and say, hey, I'm going to pull back my guarantee here. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I want to make sure that, that somehow they know that, that we as an organization, I mean, my artist at that point, you know, because each, each artist is their own culture. And, uh, and has their own corporate culture, if you will, about them. And it's my job to make sure that, that promoter knows, look, like, we'll make it up to you somehow. Or we're, we're, we're not stopping here. So, mm-hmm. and... Um, Those relationships, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. And then the, the role that the agent plays in between where Reed and I lie in the sand right. is a, it's a very, it's an interesting volley that takes place because 90% of the time you're not dealing with promoter to manager in the same way that I'm not dealing necessarily with the artist, that agent plays an important role. So in picking an agent for your artists, what do you look for? Um, that's a great question. Um, 
Passion, 100%. So anytime I sign an artist, it's because I, I think they're awesome. And, and I'm really in love with what they're doing. And, um, and so when I go out and I start building that artist team, an agent's probably the most crucial part of it in this day and age, but an agent, a record label, publicist, publisher, whatever it is, um, when I start building that, that artist team, I am looking for someone that has the same fervor about the artist that I do. Um, because that's, that's the kind of person that's going to go to bat for you mm-hmm. and for the artist when it counts the most. Do you look at the other artists that this agent has grown? <sighs> yes and no. Um, so I think a trap that a lot of young artists fall into is they'll be like, oh my God, we're gonna, we just got an offer from this label. They also you know, put out records for x y and z artists you know or we just signed with this agent and they also book this person this person and this person you need somebody that's got enough connections no question about it but you know i've had um artists that are at major agencies that don't get the attention that they're deserving and uh and i have to talk with my agents about it be like do you want this still like, because like, here's, here are the opportunities that we're missing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, it, look, it, it happens. Like in order to make a living on the business side of music, you've got to be up to your eyeballs, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to have more work than you can physically do in a day. <laughs> um, it's the only way to ensure that you're gonna be getting paid enough and that you are diversified in enough places. So I manage a lot of artists and sometimes, everybody's busy at the exact same time and it just flares up. And sometimes it'll, there'll be an ebb, but so, so other people, that's not unique to me. That's unique to our record labels that I've got my client signed to the agencies that I've got my client signed to. And so I've got to be able to have a relationship with my agents where I can, you know, call them and, and lay into them a little bit. Um, but, but know that because they're a, they're down for it because they're passionate about the artist too. So what does your day to day then look like? Uh, it's on the sheet. <laughs> I don't really have one. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, um, I, I keep a to-do list of like, well, as a manager, you've got to wear all the hats. Mm-hmm. You're a jack of all trades. So you are a master of a trade. You put on shows. Okay. I know about what you do. But I don't, I don't know everything about it. I can't know all of the radio DJs. I can't. No. Check one, check two. Cool. Um, Got this. I can't know all, you know, I don't know all the talent buyers. It's not my job. It's my job to know the agents that know the talent buyers. It's my job to know the record labels that know the radio stations. It's my job to know the publicist that knows all the media outlets. And then to find the right ones for a given artist. And so... And that's a lot of personalities. That's a lot of personalities. Yeah. Yeah. And then the artist, too. (laughs) That's the personality. Um, Yeah, so it's... um, So in any given day, one of those departments might be busier than than another. Mm -hmm. So we might be working on a tour for Tank over here, and then it's, uh, you know, Frida's working on an EP, and, and I've got to switch to different parts of my brain and, and how that relates. Because mm-hmm. you've got to be able to zoom out and see how is this EP release going to affect our festivals mm-hmm. and our club plays 12 months down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so, so the dates change. What's your day look like? 
my day is dealing with a lot of agents all the time. <laughs> On the festival side, it was um, it was a lot more uh, diverse when it comes to putting together the programming and the lineups, and then talking to uh, the production team. What are we going to do about broadcast? Talking to the sponsors, trying to figure out where the sponsors wanted to land with their artist activations, and then going through artist relations advance and trying to build out for 150 bands on any given festival what their needs are going to be and what we can actually provide. Because an artist, if they're routing in, like St. Vincent routing in tonight on a bus, we're hanging her stuff, we're putting out everything that she needs when it comes to riders and accommodations, um, but uh, on a festival side, an artist rolls up and they need to play on our stage. Sometimes that's not always the most exciting thing. They don't want to do that. They want their own drum kits. They want their own gear. What does that backline look like? You have a lot of balls in the air, but those generally be uh, in the advance, and you rely on your director of production, and you rely on your catering, your hospitality person. You rely on those people to, again, like you were saying, know their jobs and do their jobs well, especially for transportation. If you're looking for even getting the bands to and from the festival site and getting them to and from the stage, that ground transportation needs to be the tightest thing that runs on the festival all day long in addition to the production. On the venue side, there's, and there's ebbs and flows, like you were saying. On festivals, when you're in the height of, you know, you're eight months out from a festival, we know where exactly where we want to be. If we're six months out, and with every individual company that you will work for, there will be a different projection. There will be a different trajectory, and that will depend upon where the festival is, where the venue is, where, um, what audience you're trying to target, and then ultimately what the timelines are of, like, when you say to the artist, this is when we're going to announce, this is what the marketing's going to be, let's get everyone on board for the on the club side it is it's uh, it's a constant rotation whereas agents were coming to me um, in big chunks before looking for soft tickets and opportunities there I, it's a it's more of a daily stream of okay this band is going out okay we're gonna have a new record oh how about this oh how about that and especially when you're looking at a club like Gasa Gasa which is actually really funny too Mike Twillman showed me when he, you guys all had this idea, this passion, this is what you're gonna do. He walked me through Gaza when it was still in rubble. And there was, the, the courtyard wall was down and he said, we're gonna put the bar here and the office is gonna go there. And it was so exciting to see, um, especially to see anyone that you've worked for. And same thing with bands, watching them grow. We've been able, I think we've been in very unique positions where we've been able to watch other people in our in this industry grow into the positions that they have now. And like every agent that we work with, their assistant is gonna be that next agent. Yeah. So that's a constant flood and a constant rotation. And then when you have changes with your music venue, if there's new gear or this is broken down, okay, well, we know that this artist is coming in, we're probably gonna have to rent this, or we're gonna need to hire more spots, or what can we do, um, you know, what can we do at Gaza? How big can we go? How far can you push your ticket price for your market, for that band? And it's a lot of collaboration. And the agent, if you have a really good agent, they're a really good advocate for that artist. And that's what's really exciting to be able to work with someone who wants to get on the phone and wants to talk about how to make this work, maybe even a market where when even in a market where they've never been before and trying to get them in, what can we do? What can we do? How can we hit it? Well, let's go in at a low ticket price, same ticket price day of show, and let's just get as many bodies in the room as possible. So then on the next route, okay, we'll keep advanced tickets the same, but let's do a $2 increase day of show. 
And finding that balance, I have found, again, is about research and looking at history. So you're on every website that you can think of, pulling up what the artists' socials are, who are they working with, who have they collaborated with, what can you use on your promotion side to really build that? Is there an artist that sounds, okay, well, they're coming in and they sound a little bit like this artist, so then let's make sure we hit those ticket buyers and those people that have been to those shows in the past. And any angle, and in, it's, in New York, you just have such a high volume of people that you pretty much know that what you're going to do up there, like if we've had artists play Gasa Gasa here and then sell 1,200 tickets in New York and you just never know where that is really going to land here until they have a history in New Orleans. What has been your biggest struggle in the music business? <sighs> Late nights. Um, very, very late nights at the Superdome. Um, I would say your biggest struggle is dealing um, from a promoter side is the challenges that can come working, again, with some of your agents when there is when there's just a show that you don't think is going to fit, but they really want it to fit, when you are going back and forth on what you can, what you know you can offer. And if the show, you're taking a swing and it might be a miss, how much are you going to lose? Or if it's a really big swing, do you have history with that agent? And do you know that like, okay, we're going to plow through this and then we're going to know that the next time around, it's going to be better. Or when you have to just say, it's not going to work. Yeah. And that's the, hardest, that's the hardest conversation to have. And then getting bands to the stage for their sets at a music festival is definitely the hardest part of the job. <laughs> because sometimes they'll even be on site and they disappear, and you don't know where they are. <laughs> oh, boom. Yeah, I don't mean to sidetrack, but oh, I think I kind of lost it from the beginning. What were the companies, again, that both of you worked for? Good call. I work for the Bowery Presents. Good call. Maybe we didn't say that. <laughs> um, I run a, a management company called Simple Play Presents, but we are splitting as of like tomorrow into two different factions and the management company is now going to be mid-citizen entertainment so it's yeah, a nice name it's pretty sweet I like it yeah it's, it's, it's it references mid-city <sighs> yeah yeah it's going off for everyone here too anyway <laughs> good call yeah good call <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, all right yeah let's just do some clapping we'll take it <laughs> Um, oh, um, so my partner, Ron, that started the company, he books One-Eyed Jacks, and he's just going to keep booking and, and being a, a local promoter. Yep. Mm -hmm. And Ron used to book Asa. He sure It's did. all in the family. It's all in the family. All in the family. It's a small business. Yes. It's a small town. Yes. Yeah. What, what, what time is it? Should we open this up to questions? <laughs> cool. Let's take some questions. Nice. Does anybody have questions? We got one. Uh, it, your call. You're the one that... I turned around. I jumped your gun, right? <laughs> All right. In your guys' separate experiences, what do you believe makes the most attention-grabbing or compelling nature? Oh, wow. Oh, good question. Um, from an agent, and from an agent usually garners more attention from a buyer than, an than someone reaching out from um, their own personal accounts. We do listen to everything. We can get, I can get an up to 60 press kits a day. And you go through, and what is that first link that you have in your email? 
And that first link, is that a video? Is that your, is that an original piece? Is that a cover? What do you think best showcases you as an artist to then drive forward and more into, um, is this appropriate? That's when my brain starts thinking, what could this be appropriate for? What room, which event, is there a private event? Is there a, you know, a corporate nonprofit event? Um, I'd say, and like we do, a good buyer will look at everything, um, but a little, I always like the blurbs that say just a little bit about who they are or who that singer-songwriter is, and then immediately show me your content. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about telling a story as well. So there's so much music out there, and so it's way easier if it's like, okay, this is some great music, but here's the story that, that goes along with this great music, um, because then you, it transmits easier when, when it comes to word-of-mouth marketing. Yeah. I think also the most attention-grabbing thing you can do is point to sales numbers if they exist as, as an agent so yep. and festivals these are the even the small festivals these are the things that we've played and just rattle them off and yeah. any of that experience is always Ashley you could probably help me with something yes Reed uh, so today Frida's never played Essence the Superdome and we always get these calls for the convention center stuff right and, and I'm just like no put us on the festival or we're not doing all this ancillary stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're like, do you have, you know, and so what I did was I composed an email. I went around my agents <laughs> and went, you know, it's bad then <laughs> and, and, went, and went straight to essence because I'd also like, you know, it, it just didn't seem like my agents were really putting in, they were just treating this like another festival. And I'm like, yo, we need to do essence. And, um, and so what I, the very first thing I did was last year during essence weekend, Frida sold out Tipitina's on a $35 ticket in advance. So it's just like, here are the hard ticket numbers. Here's the exact gross, yep. you know, like it's undeniable. So just freaking book the artist. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's other things that, you know, talked about what Frida means to New Orleans mm -hmm. um, that, that, the, that people didn't quite grasp. And I think that's one of the most important parts. And I worked on Essence for five years. On, in booking and artist relations. And there are just, and it's, it's really up to what your client decides is appropriate for them. And you have a lot of opportunity. And it was great. I mean, booking Voodoo, we were all on the same team making our own decisions. Essence and Quicksilver, we've done stuff with Revlon and the Make It Right Foundation. And you're pitching for your, for your client. And I mean, I think the, it's exactly what you just said, what freedom means to New Orleans mm -hmm. and the festival being here and how much it means to the city, that's huge. More questions? Jane. When uh, thinking about how much to pay an artist for a festival slot, mm -hmm. uh, I'm just curious about what questions you ask yourself, because I was at a festival before and it was like a Sunday at 4 p.m. and a reggae band just killed it and there, it was packed, fully packed. And it was on a Sunday at 4 p.m. So I'm just wondering, I guess, would that artist I would say that that's actually a really good slot. If you think that just in the, and when we think from our perspective, it's a Sunday, it's probably not going as late as your Friday and Saturdays. And if you're thinking people are probably getting there just around that time, okay, and then you think 
when you look at food and beverage, what are your beer sales going to be like if everyone's chilling and having a great time? That's fantastic. So I would say that's probably the most perfect slot for them to kick off the day. One of the biggest struggles that we had was booking bands so early. When gates open, music up, let's go. But then who's really there? And what are you going to pay for that? And that's always the trick. And then you also need to, in just all encompassing, is what is your budget? So if you know you're working with, and every time we would go into conversations with agents about bands, this is, you know, it's not Coachella. And there's just some financial constraints that we do have. And we're a smaller festival. So what an artist, that's one of the biggest things they say, well, the artist makes this on festivals or the artist makes this each club play. Okay. But we need to take into consideration the city that we're actually, that you're actually going to be in. And here's what I have to offer you. And so when you look at your budget and you know what your headliners, hopefully you already have had your headliners and you know what they're going to be. And then you do your support and then you're filling out everything. Uh, you're really building it out. And like I said, it's those middle bands and then all of the bands that you see at the bottom that really do, that makes a difference where people are like, oh, well, I really love that headliner. But who else is on that day? And then in turn, if you're booking, you want to think, okay, well, if I have this hip hop act on Saturday and I want to have people buy three-day tickets, if they don't know where that's going to necessarily fall, maybe you're splitting those hip hop acts and you're putting one on Friday and one on Saturday so someone's more encouraged to buy a three-day ticket. Or are you just stacking up one day and just letting it roll? And that's what's that's part of the delay in coming out with the schedules. But again, that all depends on your budget. So it really does vary. That's a great question. I would also say, so from my standpoint too, when we get a festival offer that feels low for one of my artists, I will point to what we actually did on a hard ticket in that market. Um, and then if you don't have history in that market and you get an offer, you just say thanks. This is great. Thank you very much. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> um, who's next? Uh, what up? Oh, I love that. I ask myself that question every day. Um, some of it, a lot of it does come down to money and what you can offer. So are you going to go, are you going to risk everything and go upside down on a deal? So if you're going upside down, you're basically betting the house and giving away everything, hoping that you're going to make money on the insides and then call it a day. I'd say the, the greatest thing a talent buyer can do in the city is just keep reaching out and just don't give up. Keep going. The, the, and the beautiful thing about New Orleans is the culture and that like bands want to, I mean, there are very, there is no city like this city. So getting artists to want to come down here is not the problem. Most of it, it's financial. Does it work in the routing? If they have to make a certain amount per gig, right? And you can speak better to that. Like, what are you going to well, do? Well, there's certain tours that just cost a certain amount of money. Right. A, a, a tour bus is a thousand bucks a day, and then everything else. So, um, but sometimes you're you know you, you're you're routing a tour and you, you lose money on a show mm -hmm. because you lose more money taking the day off, um, or you just want to get in the market and 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 so you use Atlanta and Houston as you know you're going to make more money there. 
And so like right now I'm routing a, 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 th- um, a month long tour in the fall. And, uh, and yeah, I, I'm looking at this weekend in Wisconsin and I'm just like comparing it to my weekend in New York and Boston. It's not comparable. So, yes. but yes, great question. I'll go first. Always reach out. Always reach out. A good talent buyer will click through every email, will listen to everything, because you also, in turn, never know who that next artist is going to be. If you hear something that fits perfectly, there are so many opportunities for, especially those early slots that we had on the festival. If you really believe in a band and you really love their sound and there might not be a lot of money in it, we'll just give you some passes for the weekend and feed you and let's call it a day, but having that, getting that little opportunity, that little foot in the door makes, it makes a big difference. But I would say finding the appropriate talent buyer, and that's a lot of research too, because our information is not just out there, um, but finding that person and just, you work to build a relationship. And I think that's the biggest thing that we do in our careers is to build those relationships and continue to grow those. Yeah. So, um, she's absolutely right. Reach out. Um, and, and I do this with like my starting acts that are just maybe hitting a a market on just a club show for the first time. I reach out to all the press. Um, even though I don't expect a story to get written, I don't expect a DJ to spin their record. Um, there's a, whatever, I I, I don't know where I heard this, but you've got to see a product or anything seven to 10 times before you register like, hey, I need to check that out. So like you're thinking about even like a show that you may want to go to, like you see it listed online, you see a flyer for it. It's the same concept. So Ashley, if, you know, sees the name of a band the first time and it probably, maybe it doesn't process because there's 60 things coming in, but then like next time it comes in, it's like, where have I seen that before? Pay attention a little bit more. Third time, okay, this band's actually serious. So you may, you probably won't get that festival slot that first time, um, but you should be reaching out um, because a lot of this is about awareness. Um, so next, if you're in a band and you don't have history in a market and you want to play a festival in that market, you have to point to what you're doing elsewhere, and it needs to be compelling. Um, if so, I've got. Um, like a, a budding indie rock band that just signed with Verve Records, and they're still, uh, they, they tour nationally, but they haven't broken. And, and so we, Sweet Crude. Um, and so it's about finding, you know, so they get these like uh, good enough festival offers that sustain them and help them make a living. Um, but we're able to point to these other plays that we've done. Now, lastly, if you don't have that much compelling history, uh, you know, in general, then it's about building that and, uh, you know, just playing really great shows and having people see you and book you for the next thing. And it takes years. And there's nothing wrong with starting small. I think one of the biggest problems that I see, especially in music festivals or seeing anything is uh, going too big and trying to do too much. And then, like you said, um, referencing your heart, you don't want to see one of your shows sell poorly. No. So if you go too big too quickly, that's not the answer. Absolutely. I mean, for we're, the fall tour I was talking about, we're doing uh, Tang and the Bangas like CD release tour in the fall. 
and we're intentionally making sure everything sells out, if that makes sense. If we think we could sell 2,500 tickets in a market, we're playing the 1,800 cap room. Um, Genius. We're doing Brooklyn Steel with you. That shit's going to sell out the day it goes on sale. Have you been to Brooklyn Steel yet? I haven't. I will. Come to New York. Come to Brooklyn Steel. It's awesome. <laughs> um, next question. I see one over there. Boom. Yes. Yeah, so like, you were talking about when you're looking at an artist, if you found someone that you say like fits um, the, the like vibe of the festival, like who decides what exactly like, the direction or like the vibe of a certain festival is, is it all the travel scouts, or is there someone like saying like, this is what we, we're like looking for you guys to choose from? And, like it depends on the festival that you're working with. So when we were working on Voodoo, that was definitely a collaborative effort. That was everyone where we're all sitting, all so passionate about what's coming out, who can we get, what should be like our big, just like throw, maybe a Tom Waits, just really <laughs> throwing that out there. Um, that was very collaborative. When it came to um, booking for a festival like Quicksilver, they relied heavily on our direction and what do we think is going to sell? What do we think is gonna do well? Surf rock, beach crowds, uh, New York City. Well, we've got, um, you know, Taking Back Sundays from Long Island. They live like down the block from where we were gonna put up the show. So let's bring them on in, things like that. Um, and it's very, it, it does get very diverse per festival. And then you have big companies that do big festivals, that do multiple festivals, like the Coachella, or like, you know, C3 with Voodoo and Lollapalooza and... Um, and, ACL. Yeah, and ACL. That's that's what I was reaching for in my head. <laughs> that one. Um, where you're, I mean, they have an opportunity where they can look at bands and route them from multiple music festivals or make multiple offers for music festivals, which is such, a, that's an exciting position to be in as well because then you have just a lot more leverage. So it really does, it really does depend. But if you get an assistant, if you find an email address for an assistant talent buyer and that's like, that's, I Happen, I happened to go to a Tokyo Police Club show at the Music Hall of Williamsburg and talk to the manager after, and he's like, oh, you work on Voodoo. Well, we want an offer. And then I went to Steve Rahaj and said, hey, Tokyo Police Club wants to play. And he said, well, figure it out. <laughs> and that was my very first band booking for the festival. But it's finding those assistants, too, where they can make a difference in their opinion. They're like, I've got the perfect band to open. I've got this perfect band. Or even for finding tour support for a show, which I know, it, which is very challenging because a lot of the time your tours are, you have support already on those. Right. Yeah. question more for you. Um, you said for your management company, you've been talking a lot about signing your artists to labels. It's been like a lot of contradicting things said like in classes about being on a label. What's your take on that? 100% sign. Sorry, sorry, sorry. When I was, when I was in college too, <laughs> when I was in college too, I also was just like, I mean, you know, middle finger to labels, like screw this shit. Like my band, like I never even got a manager. Um, it was it was a bad idea. Um, the whole point is there's not enough time in a day. So it I say I say as a blanket statement sign. Uh, if you're signed to the wrong label, then I mean, I just got one of my clients out of a bad deal, and um, this is a roundabout thing. But um, this band Sweet Crude had signed with a small indie label because it was the best deal we could get at the time. And it came with a promise that wasn't written. 
if you get a, an offer from a major label or a bigger indie, we'll happily let you go because then that bigger label is going to put more money into the band and the smaller label keeps the first record and they just sit on it without spending any marketing dollars and they just make money on their back catalog. Um, I say, so, um, like, Frida's been independent, Frida's whole career. And we just signed with Asylum. And Asylum is, uh, it's partners with Atlantic in some ways. It's a Warner label. But the amount of extra, like, there's a radio department that's, like, putting together the right marketing strategy for Frida at radio. There's a PR department that's got way more reach than, than our indie publicist does on some things. There's just the music video we shot. Like, from the creative, like, there's tons of people on staff. And I can't, as a manager, because if you're putting out your records yourself and you are the record label, then all that stuff falls on a manager. And I don't know people at radio. I don't have those relationships. I, you know, and, and nor is it a good use of my time to try and build those relationships because it means that I'm neglecting my job somewhere else. And so you're trying to find, as a manager, and as you're building your artist career, you're trying to find people that specialize in what they do. And if you were to think of an artist's career as a flowchart, an artist is the board of directors. They, they own it. They hire the manager, who's the CEO, that then oversees all the other departments, publishing, booking, you know, finance. And, and it's about finding the right partners in those. And a lot of that has to do with recorded music, too, which we haven't really talked about here. But, but yes, I would say, like, now some people are making music that doesn't necessarily make sense on a label. So I get that. And some of my clients don't have record deals because of that reason. But if you are making music that somehow should be to a bigger audience, and, and it could be as weird as possible because there's plenty of weird labels. Um, as long as you're getting what you feel like is a fair deal, they're going to take money, of course, because they've got a staff of 50 people that they have to pay. But if you're getting more traction, all of a sudden you go from getting $6,000 guarantees on festivals to $15,000. That's so much more worth giving up you know, some of that recorded music income because now more people know about you as an artist. So... There you go. <laughs> Sorry to break hearts. Um, next question, or do we? Um, so as some of your artists are being signed to these labels, how does your day-to-day, -day, what you're doing for them, change? Um, so the question was, as somebody gets signed to a label, how does my day-to-day -day change? Um, I no longer, so I'm no longer directly managing the release of the music. I'm not putting it on TuneCore anymore. Instead, the label is releasing it through their actual distribution platforms. I'm going from, uh, I'm now managing the label, if that makes sense, and making sure that they're coming to me with like, you know, like we're, we're putting our heads together and like, so like, you know, you might sit down with the marketing director to label and be like, we're putting $75,000 in marketing into this record. And you, and, and I'm fortunate enough that I've got, some of my clients sign to labels that are that transparent with me and we'll sit down and go through line by line. All right, we're going to spend this on photos, this on videos, this on radio. Um, this we have in-house. We don't need to spend it. We're trying to break into Europe. So we're going to use 20K for a bunch of your, you know, tour support to get over to Europe. You know, so, um, and also we don't have that kind of money. A label does. So anyway, so yeah, I go from, 
uh, directly managing a process to then managing another team of people, if that makes sense. Do we have any others? Are we out of time? Oh. Does anybody else have a question? So you were talking about uh, there's a lot of research involved and like resources for that research. Um, what like what would be an example of that? With any um, company that you'll start working for, they're going to have their own in-house resources. So you'll be able to see just in their internal history. So you'll see what artists have done ticket-wise, and you'll be able to see what your bar ring was. You'll be able to see what your ticket price was, so are you getting any rebates off of that ticket? You'll be able to see what artists are similar that could probably do those numbers because you've already established that your venue is the venue to be able to see that band, which also is very cool to then start growing bands and growing bigger and bigger from there. Do you look at Spotify or Facebook likes or anything like that? I would say that, the, and especially for, um, for younger bands, bands that are just starting out, the social impact that you can make, as well as my marketing team can make, is also a big deal. That's something that I think, um, it's, it's something that I w wish those numbers didn't necessarily, and those numbers don't necessarily turn into ticket sales because you could have a band with 5,000 likes that's never been outside of New York or a band with 5,000 likes that's never been outside of New Orleans, but you start growing that and then your network starts growing. And I don't want to say that social network starts growing, but the social network does start growing. And so it's, it's also very interesting because you can take a look at the fabric of the artist. You can take a look and see, well, what do they post about? What's interesting? What makes them, are they posting about all their shows? Do they on, only post about one thing or another, or is it just kind of a very relaxed page? Um, you, I don't, I, I don't look at Twitter. Sorry, guys. Nobody does. Thank you. Um, Spotify is interesting. Spotify is definitely an interesting tool. Just Sorry. Just <laughs> uh, Spotify is a very interesting tool too because it's just it's it's something that's just already up on my computer. It's something that I can just punch in and I can see. Okay, well, what kind of music do they have? I mean, even one song. Is there one song up there? Is that someone's? Is that like their best song? But then there's always that conversation: Is that your best work, or is that just your earliest work, or is that your latest work? And how do you want to showcase yourself with that too? Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Did, did you have one? Oh, never mind. So if you have any other questions, I'd say come on down and, and ask us here. EQ&A is brought to you by Loyola University New Orleans and the Scavengers Network. Uh, as the owner of the Scavengers Network, I am unbelievably thrilled to have this program here on our network to help bring the message that these fantastic industry professionals are bringing to our school and then take it to the rest of the world. So thank you so much for joining us here on EQ&A from Loyola University, New Orleans. This is Colin Parker, and we'll see you next week.